Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's chrono-skimming classics and judgment. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me judging every- I'm kidding, being judged. I'm really nervous about this thumb thing. Over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Arturo Baby, Atusabe, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Toybox. So I think I already sort of like blew the secret that we're here to talk about Judgment Day, but we're not here to just talk about Judgment. We're going to take a look at Judgment Day issues one through three, as well as breaking in to cover number four. And I am so impressed by this creative team across the board. We have Kieran Gillen on writing, Valerio Skeety pulling in all unbelievable line work. Like I can't even understand some of this line work and dexterity. Beautiful. Marte Gracia over on colors. Beautiful colors. Love the color. Beautiful colors. Gorgeous colors. I mean, gorgeous. Just everything like the mm-hmm. Valerio Skiddy is so insanely talented, and that's nothing new. But this is like delivering like just best ever. The colors are so undeniably Marte. It's like it feels like it is you know of a piece with some of the crossovers that have been a little closer to home, like House of Powers and Ten of Swords, and like Marte has this ability to just make things feel so epic. Throw in that Clayton Cowles kills it on the letters every single month with Mark Brooks destroying my preconceived notion of Mark Brooks on cover art. I'm a fan of Mark Brooks's work, but I sort of feel like it gets that John Cassidy syndrome of everybody's like pose time. So I've already said a whole lot of words about Judgment Days 1, 2, and 3. I am a very vocal fan of this series. Judgment Day number one. Where were you guys on this whole everybody's gonna get fucked? (laughs) Where to begin? I've had this resistance. I reject the premise. Right? Like the mutants are deviants and and the solution is to exterminate them. So just like as an ex-fan who's really enjoying, you know, the Krakoa era, doesn't want it to end, loves life on Araco. Like I hate that this event has crashed into, you know, our little bubble reality. But that said, I gotta say it is like a compelling story. It, it's won me over. It's got me in. It's been really, really, really difficult. I mean, we haven't even, we will wait till we talk about four but right out of the gate the mutants just take it on the chin i mean by the end of the first issue uranus has like leveled mars i can't believe you called it by its colonizer name oh yeah filthy filthy human human Well, because it's honestly, because it's like, it's easier for me to say that than to say that he destroyed a rock. One is a location and one is a culture. I very much understand the Absolutely. idea. Absolutely. Yeah, I have to say that everything that's been leading up to this crossover event has really been building up that tension between the Eternals, the Avengers, and the mutants for, I mean, how, how long has this been building up? Seeing all those threads come together 
together here has really gotten me excited and scared. And I mean, just like I, I wasn't expecting to be seeing Moira connecting with Druig at all. I have been making this shout it from the rooftops kind of argument against the name of this event. Now, beyond the fact that I just feel like this wasn't run through enough people that work in PR that have ever heard of memeing. But other than that, I actually hate the name Avengers X-Men Eternal because that completely does not refer to the right people. It's not the Avengers. As we've seen, it's all of the heroes of the Marvel Universe. It's not the X-Men because the X-Men are seven people that live in a treehouse in New York City. And it's not all the Eternal because there's two groups of Eternal. There's everybody. And then there's Druig and he sucks. Oh, he's he's the worst. He's the worst. He's the worst. How do you guys feel about this? Like, oh, it's the it's all the X-Men, but it's really all the mutants. It's just the Avengers, but it's really all the Marvel heroes. How do you guys feel about the nomenclature of the design? There's something about this that kind of brings some peace to to some of these other stories that have been going on. Like, I mean, it's only a matter of time before the X-Men square off against the Avengers again, right? But it's nice to see them working together. And I think obviously there's like a marketing angle to the whole, like, let's make the Eternals cool again. Make them cool again, though? This is, right, this right. is again, I, look. Remember when they tried to make the Inhumans cool again? <laughs> the Eternals have always been better used as anything but the Eternals. They're always a little bit cooler as some part of a Thor store or appearing as Avengers. They're not really cool on their own. They're big idea cool, but that doesn't always play on the page so pretty. I enjoyed uh, Neil Gaiman's take on the Eternals, and that's go to, you know, reference material. That, that Those are the Eternals that were ever cool, in my opinion, right? It felt like he was, like, subverting the genre. Like, he's got these eternal, you know, celestial-powered beings, but it was kind of, like, more like a gumshoe mystery. One of the things that he did so well there was he extrapolated on the notion of the personification of identity via sort of, like, common thing in our world, you know, where we have the Seven Endless, and he also did that piece where it was, like, the days of the week all met together by a campfire. And here he's sort of, not without justifiable canacity, but he sort of played more into each one has like very specific abilities and we sort of got that Makari was just playing faster in a way that was definitive kind of like the way the Endless all deform reality but they have specific domains so I I, I agree it was an extrapolation and refinement of the classic Kirbyan ideas for a post game and is a rock star comic so that does also though have me ask a question because we all shit on him right away drew it I really wish that like somewhere on the book was like, it's not the hot one from the movie. Just like some sort of warning that this isn't the, you know, the cute boy coming at me with the burr. Like this is just like, guys, a bummer. How do you guys feel about Uranos and Druig as the central antagonists of this event where I think that, but isn't the bad guy also the judging celestial god? It's, I'm really unsure if I want to take that step because the way that I've been reading this celestial, it's coming across very infantile like like something that was just born exactly right and it's it's making these black and white decisions without really understanding the situation behind why these characters are are acting a certain way and at the same time of imposing these judgments it starts questioning itself so it's growing by learning about all of these people but it's not 
actually using that growth, I, I think. So it's going from amoral to immoral. Mm-hmm. It didn't know the difference before. And now yep. it knows and just doesn't really feel the need to course correct. Exactly. Not yet, anyways. I uh, mean, yeah. I, guess, I guess we'll see what happens. I always have faith in you know the power of friendship, whatever you know device that we can find to whatever MacGuffin we can find to, to fix the solution. But I, like, okay, first of all, in Uranus, fuck that guy because he's yeah, well, also, he's kind like, of a genetic <laughs> like I mean like, yeah. there's a part of me that is like he's like a bigger you know gnarlier Thanos you know so hot super hot would have loved them in any other circumstance but again like just the use of him in this story just like so many characters were just killed off panel that's the other thing just like the disrespect of that that we just get to like his last you know final 10 seconds you know hard to like the guy and hard to like the guy that set him loose on everybody but i'd just like to point out that building our own celestial from scrap using mr sinister's expertise and the cadaver that the avengers have been disrespecting and using as their crash pad for a year or whatever that was never a good idea they're like this was never going to end well thank you for mentioning the sinister of it because everyone's always like oh tony stark tony stark and i'm like right but the eugenicist right no yeah i mean yeah come on like and i love this i love that kieran gillen is pulling so much stuff from current x-men lore that that's one thing i do love about this by him pulling this stuff in it kind of helps cement it even further into you know marvel dumb it's not just like the, the mutants over there on the island like do appreciate that i think that one of the key elements that makes this story so complicatedly engaging as readers is you're often given a specific thing to rally against and even when when it's, you know, via obfuscation. Like if we take a look at House of M and we consider that it really wasn't big bad daddy Magneto behind it all, but instead it was petulant Pietro, we can piece together the narrative in a cohesive way. But the thing that's so interesting here is the engine has gotten away from the conductor and the train is going to go off the tracks at this point because Druig, you know, for all of his vaunted brilliance, certainly didn't understand the grandeur of something so much greater than an Eternal. And I think we've oftentimes in the Marvel Cosmos been told, nah, that motherfucker is the biggest motherfucker. It's Magnum XL and just, you know, bite down. But the, I think the thing of it is, you know, that's when you're talking about physical form creature, right? Because, you know, we could get to the one above all and the one below all. It, it just gets out. But like physical creatures, Celestials are kind of as big deal as it gets. And I wonder how you guys feel about even if it's Uranos and Druig who are at the heart of the building it really is the creature itself that has taken on did you guys ever celestial before this or did you just sort of like oh you know celestials hey i'm very like celestials hey like very um <laughs> very like that with it's like very casual with them always happy to see them turn up like iconic designs like talk about characters that are just propelled and and sustained by an amazing design right like just they it's like kirby like immortalized but you know they're not exactly characters that one can can actually relate to you know it's just um in a way they're they're kind of like when they show up you know big shit's going down you know yeah i mean it's yeah. like when the watcher appears you're just sort of all of a sudden like ah it's a very special two-part x-men right yeah 
Yeah, but like nobody's like, oh, that's the watcher. That's my guy. That's that's, that's my, you know what <laughs> I mean? See me and him. Like, I'm always like, looking at stuff when I'm bald. There's like a little warm familiarity. You're like, ooh, shit, this is big if he showed up. But, you know, he, he, it's fine. Like some characters just need, you know, exist to serve a function. And then others, we get a lot more interiority and and kind of like get to know them. And I would just like to take take a moment in, in our coverage here to thank the Lord for being... For an Exodus fan right now. This is like Exodus's golden era. Like, I am loving what's going on in Immortal X-Men, and I'm so happy to see it carrying through here. I just, he's just a cool character that nobody had done anything really with in a long time. I love this. So, yes, I can agree with that. My one concern about Exodus's part is the fact that he immediately assumed that the Avengers were abandoning the mutants. I mean, like... Scott uh, told them to go and help the people that were being threatened by the tidal waves. And it was my understanding that they were all connected telepathically so that they could strategize fighting the Hex. Having Exodus and Destiny both say that the Avengers abandoned them was... it, It wasn't the best look. It felt a little revisionist of a book that we just read, which is like <laughs> always a little fascinating because like, I think that's one of the things that makes event comics like just absolutely a horse of a different color. And anyone who says, oh, event comics are just what happens like at event time. No, no, no. They're a different beast and you write them differently. And this one more than any other actually gives us an opportunity to think about that in a big way. I also need to point out that I don't know what, who from this show sacrificed what goat to you know the Nicolas Cage portrayal of Superman that never happened to make Exodus the X-Men's new Superman but (laughs) it is the ultimate bizarro in a way that I find delightfully exciting to watch I just can't wait for it to go up in flames I am excitedly eating the popcorn in a gay way watching it all happen this is gay popcorn yeah I mean that's how that's 100% how I feel about Sinister like oh yeah can't wait to watch him crash and burn but I'm enjoying the ride every step of the way till mm-hmm. we get there and I hope it's no time soon. Villains really being part of, you know, the X-Men you know, and I know X-Men are seven people that live in a tree, but part of like the ruling council and like just the face of it, like I feel like Exodus and Sinister have been able to step up more now that Magneto's gone. We haven't had Apocalypse around in a while. Destiny is all over the place just being amazing. Like these characters that used to be villains are really part of of just mutant culture and it's cool to see that not just exist on the island but now as we're engaging with the Avengers and the Eternals. You brought up the Hex and I want to just talk about that for a second because what a blast. Like I love the design of these weird monstrous engines of destruction but more than that I love that one of them's like a blogger. Like yes. What? (laughs) Like in the like with part of my mind I'm just gonna like log on to Twitter and make some burner account and just meet people. I live. I just love a good morning.
moral play. Even if I don't agree with the morality being presented, I'm fucking here for it. I want to watch how people express the idea of ironic justice. And, you know, it's why I think certain form sitcoms always come back into vogue for me. And I think it's a little bit why I appreciate the classic stylings of like a good vaudeville sketch. It's this play out of the creation of expectation. You know, it's coming, you know, it's coming. There's something so funny in never knowing the moment it's going to happen. And then it's laid out for you. So I am so excited that we are talking about this book in this really free form uh, general way that allows us to course through a lot of the issues because there is something that is at the heart of this event that is so very difficult to execute with such fine clarity. And that is so much is happening all on the same day. Now, we do know that there's going to be some major shift after five. Terrific, because, you know, we're going to see a bit more one shots coming out between five and six. So whatever's happening in the course of five and six is going to definitely change the pacing in some significant way for a hot minute. I also want to put out one more time that the un-fucking-believable miniseries by Alyssa Wong and Michael Yee, Iron Fist, is getting an Axe Iron Fist one-shot that Kieran Gillen has said is necessary reading. Oh. So I couldn't be more excited because that miniseries was like my surprise hit of 2022 and it was really one of the best drawn things I've seen in a really long time. But how do you guys feel about the nature of this compression and all of these one shots and all of these issue tie-ins? How is the narrative vocal point of time working for you? Are you guys living for this Kiefer Sutherland 24 bullshit? (laughs) Wow, I haven't thought of that show in forever. (laughs) While we were leading up to this crossover and I was looking at the release list and I saw that it was running from July to November, I was like, oh, this is going to be just way too drawn out. It's a lot. It's a lot, but I really need to see these one-offs now. I need to see how all of these characters are going to be interacting and dealing with the implications of this celestial deciding that Earth has failed its judgment. Yeah, the time compression's interesting. I think that's the way to do it. I like the little, you know, glimpses into the human's lives around the globe. Uh, Tom and Katrina, Arjun, and then his widow wife, Kenta, Jada. Like, that's been an interesting way of, of adding just, like, another pace to it that makes me, as a reader, put myself in the story. Like, what the hell would I be doing if this was how? How would I get judged? I think that's a neat trick. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely enjoying seeing these human characters who you honestly wouldn't have assumed would be important, even though the Celestial told us from the beginning that everybody is important and then their respective judgments it's just like well remember that before we even get to the judgments Mm. there was that whole virtual reality simulation that the celestial did crazy it was like oh this is the kind of motherfucker we're dealing with okay Mm -hmm. got it like yeah right away i was like this is not gonna go well you know that reveal took my breath away holy shit i thought that they just blew up multiple cities trying to save the world and Jean could have known and she didn't realize it and seeing the anguish on her face from that realization and then realizing that they were in a simulation and still not realizing that that was the case it was just it was heartbreaking for her there were so many heartbreaking moments and like individual character levels throughout this story and seeing Jean her anguish was first of all sustaining me because Jean had that 
moment in King in Black where she was like, hey, real quick, Null, I'm Jean Grey. I'm going to fuck you in the head. And she did it. And, and then, so <laughs> yeah, and then and she does it again here. This isn't an event that feels like it was foisted upon the offices. While true, it does help that Kieran Gillen has his finger in too many pies. Mm -hmm. But he is making this so natural for mm -hmm. all of these characters that this is where their story would just go. And I don't feel like this pulled anybody terribly out of where they were. I maybe wish for Jason Aaron's sake he had been able to finish Avengers Assemble prior to this because this feels a little little bit like it eclipses the events of what's going to happen in the conclusion of his run but i certainly feel like this is the next step for so many of these characters mm -hmm. so i want to bring up some of the judgments from issue four please let's some of these judgments uh, i had feelings about emma getting a thumbs down what the fuck i thought she would give herself a thumbs down yeah like yeah, i haven't I wasn't done enough by the that. mutes yeah but then like but so who's who's making the fucking call Captain America gets a thumbs down. Like let, that's how you know right away. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> we're we're fucked. And I like, think, I think he would give himself a thumbs down. I think he would say he hasn't tried hard enough. But I don't think he deserves it. <laughs> he sees the way that the world has been, and yeah, he hasn't he hasn't succeeded in what his his goals have been. The okay. world just keeps getting worse and worse. But is the question what the person would give themselves a thumbs up or thumbs down, or just their actions when weighed against you know blah 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 the greater good? That's my concern with this judgment whole thing. thing. Yes, 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 because some people judge for themselves some people there isn't really much of an explanation thor he gets an automatic approval because his hammer says so chaos yeah just i just want to point out that the one consistency i will give them is that kieran gillen is doing it cleverly because the xavier scene where charles xavier fights eternals in psychic warfare i pretend to be his son and send a message dad i need to talk later he says i'm busy and returns to his work i tip my thumb downward and he doesn't even notice <laughs> That, brutal that was so good mm -hmm. that was yeah so good. i, I yeah. love the simple thumbs up with with miles morales like you got that one right that one was good i i really enjoyed kamala's getting the thumbs up there and immediately reacting by beating her ass Mm -hmm. yep <laughs> on that Literally. miles one i love that miles just gives the thumbs up back yeah. like right it's just like being miles right the yeah. the one that i personally thought was perfect and devastating and delicious in every way was daredevil that because... was the one that oh. I, was, I was just gonna mention that one yeah nobody believes that daredevil lives a worse life than daredevil and one break on on the judgments i, I want i want to judge someone else on a different scale jack of knives they are yes. sexy as hell and the only thing i don't believe about this is that when logan faced him he didn't immediately think oh let me call solemn because the two of them would get along like a house on fire and by that yeah. i mean have copious amounts of sex much sex big sex, sex <laughs> all sex violence, sex and violence yeah you know there's a lot of gender fluidity in this run and that's a result of a team of 
not het cis normal life sort of traditionalists. It's much more diverse Wonderful. in that regard. And with that diversity comes across a recognition of the value in diverse exploration of characters that exist in the real world and their natural fictional counterparts. And I think we see that with, you know, mega queer Star Fox, who, again, I don't see the ship anywhere. I'm really disappointed. I thought we were going to space. It's the wrong Star Fox. So how do you guys feel about so much of the gender fluidity and also Eros? Oh, the Eros of it all. I love because Eros was always supposed to basically be Thanos's sissy brother, right? I mean, that was kind of like the subtext of it. Yeah. And was like never really like sissy sissy was always kind of just like, hey, I'm the lover. And yeah. And look at my great hair. Yeah. Like very, he was like, he was like Vanity Smurf, which always read very queer, right? Like, you know, there's, there's queer coding, but seeing it so much more brought to life, like again, Valerio Skitty just absolutely slaying the house down boots with this redesign of Star Fox. Never, never, never loved Eros like I do right now. I'm really enjoying the stuff surrounding Eros. Instead of being all fight, 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 he was going around to all the people, all the leaders of the world trying to build a coalition to find a way to make things better, making deals, offering celestial technology to the humans to interact with mutant technology and to ultimately create a paradise on earth yeah it's not just the power of friendship there's actually no. like some negotiating and some compromise and you know empathy listening I think you're giving the humans a lot of credit. Not them, him. <laughs> and I think that is the thing about when you're talking about Kirbyan concept, right? It's so easy to lose the humanity and the big science and the value of having a fucking genius team like this where everybody is so top of their game and you weave together these elements, especially the incorporation of Magneto as the man with a star for a heart <laughs> fucking giving me everything I need and the beautiful work of the lettering with Hail Eros Prime Eternal so much of the visual of this is so transcendent it makes this feel like you know we have a lot of problems where the events are never worth what they what they cost in so many ways but this one I don't care art alone just art alone yeah. the visuals of this book will deserve to be remembered yeah it does what these big crossovers should do the, the team just continues to deliver on that in so many ways like just the even the concept of you know the psychic attack on Krakoa via the Unimine. And like let's talk about how that was brought to Whoa. life with Valerio Skitty's like pencils and my discolor. Like incredible, you know, incredible looking uh battle. But it's just battle on these fronts that we're not really expecting. We're getting these, you know, war machines that are coming out of, of the ocean. We've got Uranus and he's got, I don't know, kind of like he can open up portals to a whole armory worth of like doomsday devices. Like basically, it's just it's not cut and dry. It's it's playing with these interesting ideas, like the idea that the Eternals and the Hex, once if they die, they are reborn, and it costs a human life. There's just something grand about that. Nobody else knows about that yet. That's gotta come up in this in this whole process at some point. They have to reveal it, or somebody like Doom will figure it out. Oh yeah, I actually love that Doom was just like, yeah, I'm gonna pass myself. Have a good fucking day. <laughs> like. 
that's just like such a great doom moment Mm -hmm. yeah i'd have the same reaction to writing doom like as this creative team i would say yeah it has to be this total disinterest and i love that about it but in terms of the opposite of disinterest i'm gonna swing myself over to very interest because so everyone dies at the end of issue four that feels a little tough to sustain a line with. I'm not sure how we should interpret that. Yes, a lot of people have died. I don't know. I don't know how how we fix this. Like, because when they first started wiping out cities, then it was like, psych, this is all happening in your mind. But if now it's happening for real, how do you repair that, right? Like, mm. I, I always think back to Infinity Gauntlet, right? Like, you know, and I guess that, that's just because it impressed upon me at a, at a young age. But the concept of half the population of the universe dies, you know, disappears, like is crazy, right? And at the end of it, there has to be some way to, to to fix that. So it feels like we're kind of on that footing. I'm always ready for any of these big events to kind of reset in the end. So who knows if a little time travel shenanigans or I don't know. We got we got the Eternals here with all their crazy ass technology. Who knows? I wonder if like uh, the force of all of the heroes from the other side is just going to be like, mm, no, no, we're just going to come back now because baby celestial god is easy to control like i just wonder if they're dead or you know shunted elsewhere yeah quite possibly quite possibly the celestial's Mm. power knows no bounds clearly the thing that i'm really struggling with is the spoiler alert death of magneto i mean he went down like a g again the artwork just breathtaking you know storm holding magneto the little smile on his face and as he sees his daughter anya uh, it's a poetic beautiful end i mean but goddamn, i am distraught i am worried i need daddy magneto back back in the mix that is going to be a loss that is going to be rather rough to to recover from i mean he's he's completely removed himself from cerebro's database so they can't resurrect him by the normal means i want magneto back with all of his baggage and emotional scarring and you know incredible character arc from you know villain to uh, i don't i don't want to say like you know messiah-like figure but he's a big deal for mutant kind like Mm. this that's a big blow you know you you can take out a whole bunch of other people and we'll be all right but magneto is it's a a blow to mutant kind Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I hope you guys enjoyed that look back at Judgment Day 1 through 4 with myself, Kyle, and Arturo. Now, those issues were, of course, by Kieran Gillen, Valerio Schiti, Marta de Gracia, and Clayton Cowles. We're also going to be taking a look in this same episode at Axe Death to the Mutants Volume 2, written by Kieran Gillen, with art by Gulu Villanova, Alex Guarmerez, and Travis Lanham. And this Judgment Summer, this big event, has been so fascinating to take a look at. If for no other the reason it feels like it's calling together so many elements of bigger x-men fandom and even sort of my personal x-men fandom one of the first emails to a writer i ever wrote was to kieran gillen thanking him for sword as it was coming out and he emailed me back and it's a correspondence i look back on really fondly and then when i first released my book kid riot one of the first things that kieran said to me when i was talking to him about it was what a great name we should come up with it and just like really cool to see this guy that i know is a really cool guy doing so well and exploring so 
much. And as a queer voice, seeing a queer creator on this title is just amazing to me. And that Kieran Gillen has so much experience with the X-Men, whether it's his original run on Uncanny, following Matt Fractions, or it's the unbelievable work he did in the background on characters like the aforementioned first volume of Sword, or his time on Generation Hope. That time on Generation Hope is why this show signs off with Keep Those Mutant Lights Lit. One of the things that this crossover has sought to do is to keep the idea of the X-Men as a concept in the foreground. Something that we find very much happens with crossovers is it gets sort of boiled down to a shitty little moment, and I'm not a shitty little moment guy. You know, I would like to believe that we would never want to be judged by our worst moments, so we should try our best to judge others with a modicum of fairness. And I feel like a lot of these Marvel crossovers really are birthed of one shitty moment, and those tend not to be my favorite. Without saying that they're bad books by any means, I'm not the world's biggest fan of either House of M or Civil War as individual crossovers, though there's definitely things about the narrative perspective of both that I love. A crossover that I loved passionately, though, was Secret Invasion, because it was never about a single bad moment for anyone, but rather the very nature of what makes these characters work and the constructions that they work in together. And that's something that I've loved about this event. We're not analyzing these characters from one bad moment. Yes, true, we're spending a lot of time on one single day, and that does make it feel like perhaps we are overanalyzing an individual time. And in the following coverage, I do even make a reference myself to the fact that it feels like much of the events going on source back to the determination by Drig that perhaps the mutants are deviants after all. The nature of this crossover is about what is an X-Man? What is rebirth? What does it mean to be a mutant and a member of a species? And we've talked about how, like, how can you make the X-Men, you know, hunted to extinction now with Krakoa and the rebirth cycle? And hey, we're actually seeing it. We're seeing something so great that the X-Men can't overtake it. And the Eternals, the nature of what is an Eternal? Who is an Eternal to the bigger picture of the world? These ideas have been pervasive throughout Kieran Gillen's work on Eternals. So instead of getting a crossover where, like, for no reason, Cersei accidentally killed Shogo, I don't know. We're getting something where it's a true question of what these teams are, who they are, what they do, why they exist. It's those questions that are at the heart of the best examinations of these characters. And for this to be a crossover that's so about examination, truly, we're not talking about whether or not these heroes are going to go into this battle. You know, this isn't, are they going to charge in with their heads held high? It's who have they been? They're fighting something, sure, but that's because the punch punch is something that we kind of need for a comic book to work. We're all about that fight, fight, punch, punch, make it happen. But the actual heart of this event is who are you and what have you done to deserve to be here? What legacy of life do you leave as a hero in the Marvel Universe? And what stake did you claim and did you live up to it? These ideas become so pervasive throughout Judgment Day and its tie-ins that it's hard not to take a look at, in many ways, the notion that this crossover is a response to where comics have gone as a line. There is a meta value to looking at these books from these perspectives. I know that I keep saying a lot about Miracle Man on the show, and it's in part because Marvel has made it very clear that this very expensive, prolonged purchase that involves some of the biggest names in the history of comics, who, 
who have all worked for Marvel at one time or another on significant projects. It's really hard not to see how they're saying some big stuff about October is going to be, you know, the return of Miracle Man. And then we have the Neil Gaiman, Mark Buckingham series coming out. And it would shock me, perhaps, if a character like Miracle Man, who lives a god's life and sort of believes in a sense of very heavy judgment, a UK character who belongs to a specific pantheon of writers born of Alan Moore. And then we get, you know, Kieran Gillen, this sort of inheritor of the voice of Vertigo in some ways, along other greats like Cy Spurrier. And I believe that we're faced with an opportunity to consider that the judgment that these characters are facing, much like the work of Miracle Man and the subsequent runs on the title that we're hopefully going to continue to see printed at Marvel, the notion that what role has the crossover itself played kind of becomes an element of the story to me. If we're judging Tony Stark by all of Tony Stark's actions, then, all right, let's actually talk about that for a minute. What good has he done for the world? All right. Now, there's no way to say that Tony Stark hasn't done good for the world. Maybe there's ways to say that he's done more bad, and I'm not arguing the validity of a contrary opinion, but Tony Stark has done good things for the world. Now, has Tony Stark lived up to being a man who brings peace to the world? I don't think so. So, sure, in that regard, he has failed. But how many of the things that happened to Tony Stark in the comics happened by virtue of a greater meta-machine that resulted in these things? For instance, we talk a little bit about the way the Eternals might be colored by the perception of the film throughout the next two segments, but Iron Man re-rose to prominence in great part thanks to Robert Downey Jr.'s world-changing turn as the character. Thus, Iron Man saw himself promoted to higher status again within the Marvel Universe, putting him at the center of a number of crossovers. That same sort of thing would lead Iron Man to doing increasingly large things. And the comic scape at the time, especially in those aughts and the teens was very what great sacrifice, what price man kind of, oh, if he's going to be the big leader, it's got to be some sort of shitty sacrifice price. And we engineered these situations by where Iron Man was forced into these roles, right, as a fandom almost, because we clamored for more. And ultimately, whether or not you're an Iron Man fan and did or didn't clamor, the bigger picture of media drove toward that. And there's a really big part of this that has to do with the fact that human beings might have realistic versions of that that they play into, but fictional characters have a unique status where we're able to sort of contextualize and pick at pieces of who they are, and that's the version we can continue to present on the page with no real-world accountability for what that would mean to the politics of life. So the progenitor is here judging the heroes of the Marvel Universe in a crossover that feels in many positive ways born of the same synergistic energy that put these characters in these positions to have a shitty day that led to these crossovers for which they will be judged poorly. It's a really interesting meta-contextualization for me as a reader, and it does ask the responsibility of how these stories play together and at what point we are going to be able to take a step back and examine how this is going to affect what we're reading. To reference back to Miracle Man and the pages of Marvel 1000, there is a Miracle Man prelude page that falls at digital page 79, and beyond the references to classic Miracle Man, 
There's a lot to be mined from this page, and it says, Emil Gargunza, after creating me, kept the Miracle Family subdued in a superhero dreamscape inspired by comics. Now it is 19 EM, Era of Miracles. I look out over a world reshaped in my image, watching its people, and I ask myself, what do they want? What do they need? I search their fictions, hunting for answers. Today, I return to comic books. I regret that one branch of art form is almost dead, burnt out. The Fantastic Four and the Avengers, Spider-Man and the X-Men, all of them have returned to comic book limbo, the silent abode of the no longer published, remembered only by collectors and historians, and by my children, of course. Briefly, I mourn the four-color heroes, overtaken by events, homeless metaphors for the revenge of the powerless. But the powerless have been empowered. The underdog have been uplifted. The metaphors abandoned. Stories. Give me your stories, and I, in turn, will try to understand you. And then Miracle Woman and Miracle Man share a sweet, short conversation. And... I reference this page because I do believe there is something to be understood from the idea that the the machine, this new god, it's all trying to understand things. And that's what I believe we are told by this prelude is what Miracle Man is trying to do as well. I'm so excited to see how this event comes together and how it all ends. And I could not be more ready for whatever the Age of Heroes, the Age of Marvels, and the Age of Miracles could come to mean. I hope that this does mark a revolutionary change for Marvel. A lot of people have said, yeah, but Miracle Man is just like less famous Dr. Manhattan. And sure, sure, if you don't have a connection with the work and maybe even if you've read it and don't think much of it, sure. But I believe that this is an opportunity to re-examine the myths and the stories that we have built so much on. This is a great opportunity to see the past as the past and the future as the future and how you can bridge the two with now. Continue to tell the story that people have come to love in the MCU while preparing the Marvel Universe to set the stage for where comics might go next. It's a really exciting time with the possibility of metaversal explorations like Spider-Verse, which we've covered here on the show, and Secret Wars, which we've talked about as well, and that this Judgment Day event at the hands of Kieran Gillen, who is such a master storyteller on such a grand scale with other brilliant minds coming together all across the Marvel Universe, like Al Ewing and Alyssa Wong. It's just such a powerful moment of potential change, and I really hope that Marvel is able to take this across the finish line. Well, until we get to that finish line, coming up, we have two more bits of coverage. We're going to kick things off with Judgment Day number four, as well as a parallel look at Death to the Mutants number two, followed by our first coverage of Judgment Day number five. Now, this event is almost over, but we still have so many one-shots to go, and I'm not exactly sure what shape that coverage is going to take. We're going to continue to cover everything that we cover here on Excess for Podcast and to bring you more amazing content like our recently released interview with Peach Momoko or our further exploration into, and I have to say this, Marvel Unlimited, it almost feels like you're you're listening because the stuff that you guys are putting up there is unbelievable. And so in our next episode, I, I hear you guys, I see you and I'm going to raise you guys that what the, and I am 
very excited to cover it because I did not see Peter Porker and a female Wolverine coming. So Marvel Unlimited, if that is you guys and you know what you're doing, we are covering what the number 20 in Monday's episode. You know, it's our proper sacrifice to the Marvel Unlimited gods. So until then, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. That's MC2 Marvel Unlimited God Sacrifice, I guess, Mondays. Me and TK exploring everything Wednesdays and Fridays. You guys know that you can check out all of that regular Marvel content that you're always looking to hear. If you haven't had a chance to give it a listen yet, you definitely want to check out that incredible interview with Peach Momoko and Yo, her translator, partner, and husband, led by Nathan, with an incredible group of voices, including me. Hey, what's up? And an amazing series of answers from an unbelievable pair, and that interview really means so much to have here on the show. If you want to check out more about the show, you can check it out at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter. You can find me at Nico Action, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and my original work at kidriotcomics.com, as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology with some unbelievable talent. I really cannot believe how lucky I am to be part of that, and thank you all to the publishers and editors for making that happen. Until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Enjoy these last two segments. Remember, it seems like you get to decide if it's thumbs up or thumbs down. So I want you to have a thumbs up day and I'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcast. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me talking about how awesome this Peach Momoko variant cover is. Yeah. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I'm Josh, you can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at F-L Politician, that's P-O-L-Y, wink, wink. And we hope you survive the experience. Unlike Magneto, because goddamn, if there were more men like him, we wouldn't need men like him. It's a really powerful line. A lot of good writing in this issue, but that was one that really struck me. The hell of a fucking eulogy. I guess that means we're talking about Axe, Death to the Mutants, number two, and Axe, Judgment Day, number four. Now, Judgment Day number four, this is the final Marvel comic ever, right? So this is our last episode of X's for Podcasts. Everything is over it now. Is. That's the final Marvel comic ever, right? It's all over. Yes, my favorite it Marvel is. Comics character is dead, so now there is no more reading. I don't need to come back to it ever again. Right? It's right. fair to assume that ended with, like, the world ending, and so we're just done now. Well, I didn't even get to the end because Magneto died, and I was like, well, I don't need to read X-Men comics or anything else anymore. <laughs> Sad to hear about the rest of the world as well. <laughs> Why don't we just jump to it? Like, it's what we're all going to want to talk about. What do we think about the judgment of planet Earth itself? We've all been trying to figure out what exactly the basis for judgment is. Whether it's, did you fulfill your purpose in life? Are you fulfilling a role? Have you accomplished your function? For a while, I was thinking it was faith versus skepticism or optimism versus cynicism. Because we see a couple of judgments that are really in line with that. But taking all the judgments that we've seen in a whole, I think it's completely arbitrary. I think it's just whatever in that moment on that day the celestial thinks based on whatever its personality is whatever its biases are whatever it thinks are important and is arbitrarily judging them in the same way that like we as the readers do our favorite characters in comics it seems like totally arbitrary a lot of these are things i would agree with some of them i don't think match even what has been done with other people it seems like everybody is being judged on a different facet of their personality or a different aspect of their life so of course we all fail if only because it seems to be a common belief that if we would 
all be judged together that we would all fail and that is kind of the damning thing in the end is the idea that you'll always be better tomorrow if you had a million years you'd never accomplish all you set out to do and maybe that's not the only thing that's important in life is accomplishing all your goals but the, the fact is the celestial itself does not seem to appreciate people always wanting to be better it seems to want us to be better today if that's a message that's an interesting one and it's a nuanced and it's a complex one but it is also like very simplistic because like as Star Fox says we need more than one day to pull the world together and like maybe they should have done it by now that's fine but like it's just unreasonable to expect interesting I definitely felt that conviction was a big part of it how much you buy in you know the reason you're doing it may be right or wrong but how strongly do you believe and follow through and, and I felt that that was really confirmed in Dr. Doom's judgment because I thought Dr. Doom was going to get a big thumbs down like I thought that Dr. Doom was going to need to show humility and finally acknowledge but the fact that he totally believes no I would be betraying myself to tell you just to save the world that Reed Richards is smarter than me got him the thumbs up because of the the huge amount of conviction definitely though not procrastinating like the the pairing of conviction and action because I think we saw the one girl who left her hotel room and forgot the tip and because she was running late didn't turn back to do it and got the thumbs down for that that seemed a little more arbitrary until we got Eros at the end where you know Eros was building up all of this kind of goodwill with the celestial throughout it you know we saw and he listens and he listens he listens and he empathizes they drew such a beautiful MB there for Eros and then just kept hard labeling Eros a he it felt a little weird especially coming from Kieran Gillen who's so good with that stuff you know and then to see Eros at the end say ask for more time try to kick the can down the road a little more you know Eros had the celestial and then lost it there the match of conviction and follow through where you know Tony was confused by that Tony saw Cersei's follow through but you know the fact that Cersei is cynical and filled with doubt hurt her Tony fucking far too cynical I mean your cynical characters got crushed in this one Emma Frost you know we saw lose even though many of us love her far too much cynicism there where Whereas some of your, let's say, more simpler characters, you know, or someone with more conviction in Exodus or in Icarus, you know, came through. There is a through line there if you follow it with the characters. And the most important thing for me, the thing that would have made me close the book and set it on fire and be done was if my fucking Habibti, if Kamala Khan got a thumbs down, I would have absolutely rioted. And so getting my one panel where she thumbs up may have made this series for me. That was all from the start when we saw that they were going to be getting judged like my first response was if they thumbs down come out like there's going to be her and miles are obvious thumbs up they have to be right oh yeah the reason that i thought it was arbitrary is because it does seem to all have to do with conviction but some of these i would disagree with on a larger scale than one day the celestial has one day to judge and that's why the conviction and action is so applied so presently because like yeah captain america failed to inspire america to be better over 100 years but like that's also not his fault and like he does seem to firmly believe in everything he does he has a sliver of doubt i guess that's why he fails i don't know why daredevil fails i i get it that he violates his moral code but i can't imagine a man with stronger conviction in the moment to keep doing what he does he's gonna judge himself like he 
Daredevil absolutely like fucking gets the thumbs down and nods like, yes. I think you're spot on. I think you're correct. It's not arbitrary. It is about conviction, but also action in this present moment. America may have been more of a shock moment for us to kind of let us know that it wasn't what we think. Also, I have trouble with the Captain America breaking it from like our Earth. So the Marvel 616 Earth versus the Earth we live in. Because the Earth we live in here fucking absolutely is getting a thumbs down. Like the Earth we live in here (laughs) is the America we live in. Has it been failed to be inspired by things like this? Absolutely. Absolutely. But has the Marvel Universe 6161 failed to have been inspired? Or is Kieran Gillen of is he comboing our America with that cap with that cap? The Marvel Universe America has failed, but I don't think that's what it's about. Like I think it's just framed in such a way that it sounds like Cap failed at his job, but I think there's a lot of bits in here, and what you say about conviction is very true. I think there's a lot of bits in here that imply that Captain America doesn't believe anything he's saying, at least in this moment. Like, when he says, listen to me, we're going to live, I don't believe him, and neither does, like, Daniela Celestial, who narrates, says that he's trying not to show his doubt. In my opinion, if you have the conviction to keep, like, delusionally believing everything's going to be okay and trying to comfort people, then that seems, like, strong enough to me, but to the Celestial, apparently a sliver of doubt is enough to fail and i think that's really why captain america failed he's not even judging the people on you know their their whole life he's judging them on like either specific action that he's observing them doing or sometimes it even seems like he's presenting them with like a little mental test how they should proceed and judging them on that luke cage fails because he asks to be judged tomorrow right i mean nobody could doubt luke cage's conviction in his work is charles xavier not convicted in his belief that he needs to do everything he can to fight the psychic siege and not talk to his son like, is that a lack of conviction? Charles Xavier is an absolute fucking thumbs down. I mean, I think we all know that. I would say that's an arbitrary judgment. If only if we're looking at this as a measure of conviction and action, which you've convinced me, I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. How is he failing in his conviction for what he believes in? Like, yes, he's an asshole, but that's part of his conviction is that he believes that the mutant cause is more important than anything, including his son's feelings. He's not applying it to everybody. He's applying it just to the people he wants yeah. to apply. So that's what I see for Charles Xavier's task personally but there's an interesting split here like we've kind of talked around it and i'm not sure how familiar you guys are with nonviolent communication but there is a kind of a split here in terms of using static and dynamic language that you know we are thinking of these characters the way we think of real people as as being dynamic you know that they live they have these long histories with ups and downs they have good moments and bad moments and they grow and evolve and things change but they're being judged kind of on these snapshots they're being judged in these very static moments. Sometimes that disagrees with us because our overall image, our kind of more dynamic average or judgment of them is otherwise, like a Cap or an Emma. I would judge Xavier poorly all the time, so I don't think that's yeah. a On the same hand, though, they do know that it's a test. Like, they've been told that like, for the next 24 hours, you have to be your absolute fucking best, and some of them still aren't, so. Yeah, the thing that stands out about Xavier to me is that it's a reverse mirror of Exodus's judgment, right? Exodus's judgment is somebody who's close to him that he actually loves coming to him and saying you have to save me and stop what you're doing and exodus says no even though i love you i have to keep fighting for this higher cause xavier has like the reverse of that where somebody who is close to him that he doesn't love comes to him and says hey you need to help me and save me and he says no i have a commitment to a higher cause but it's not painful for him to do that unlike as it was for exodus so maybe that's why xavier gets the the fail here because he does the easier thing xavier doesn't even stop and think about his son like xavier doesn't even turn to notice that he gets the thumbs down charles xavier is a jerk
in these two issues, we see a lot of machinations going on in the Eternals world. From the bigger entry to Cersei, Jack of Heart going to free Arrows from the Exclusion, to the machinations to have Arrows be elected the Eternal Prime. So how do we feel about the lead up to these two things? I don't think uh, Star Fox is going to get a lot of time to have bad consequences for being Eternal Prime, but he's already off to a better start than Druig. Yeah, Druig sucks. The big thing for me with Star Fox Eros is once again, he has taken a character where we're like, I, this is a problematic character. I fucking hate this character. Why are we dedicating an issue to them? And in the span of one issue, completely recontextualize and if not redeems, gives them their own intrinsic value to exist and have their story told. Like we just went from this is a problematic character. I can't believe we're bringing them back to he's the eternal prime. Look at he listens and empathizes. Josh, you hit the nail on the head there because it's not that this character is problematic exactly. It's just that there was nothing of value to this character previously. It was like this character was a collection of negative traits and like neutral traits. And now suddenly we get a character who has a wrinkle, a complexity of things that like make him compelling, you know, and it's that he's his specific power has another half and it's to empathize and to listen and to internalize what other people feel about things. And he can use that to his advantage. That's something we've never seen before, really. Let's not undersell the amazing takeover. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that's something that Kieran Gillen has been a part of in the arts since the start of Eternals. Some good, some bad, but definitely making sure that we're seeing, you know, a bit more diversity in terms of gender expression and characters, you know, just being real and being more of a model of, you know, reflection of 2022 than they are of, you know, 1971 or whenever Eternals were first created. Yes, I really appreciate Star Fox looking like this because I like to see people on the page who look like they might be bisexual or non-binary. That is just a personal thing for me. I think he's beautiful and fashionable and it helps with the compelling aspect of like making his powers something that don't have to be used necessarily for nefarious purposes. But also I personally like the twist that Star Fox is actually like really, really hot, like really, really attractive. And I personally think that adds a layer of weight to Star Fox's like past as a sexual and psychological and emotional manipulator. Like this is a character that I've hated for a very long time for very, very good reasons. And I think that honestly, the character works better if they're hot. I know that there's like a whole layer of like emotional manipulation that's part of the powers. So like Star Fox doesn't need to necessarily be physically attractive. And Star Fox has always been drawn as like what I think a straight person who's male thinks a hot character looks like. But it is nice to finally get a character where you can see them and you can be like, oh, this person could be dangerous with these powers. Not just dangerous, but really dangerous. Like because they're already very attractive, very alluring. It reminds me with Eros of G. Willow Wilson did the same thing when she was writing Wonder Woman and they brought in Hermaphrodite and, you know, where both of those characters, they were the design of like the TikTok that goes, you know, it doesn't matter what gender you consider yourself. If you think I'm hot, you're gay. Yes, that's, I love this. <laughs> That's this Eros. We also got some amazing binary beauty in the amazing Jack of Knives who, oh. Yeah, Jack of Knives is a new personal favorite. Jack of Knives is not solemn, but they should definitely be in a girl gang together. That would be amazing. <laughs> 
Jack of Knives and Solemn would be amazing fucking pairing. Jack of Knives, Solemn, and Tarn need to just like all go out together and be terrifying theys and he theys. No, not Tarn. Then I don't want to read the book as much. Hey, listen, these are all villain characters. I know one of them is distinctly more villainous than the others, but it's okay. They can be peers, colleagues. As an X-Men heavy podcast, how do we feel about Magneto's fate and the strong partnership with Storm that he had? I was devastated to see Magneto die. If we're supposed to believe that this is the last time we'll see the character of Magneto, he got a lot of really good stuff in, in the last two issues of X-Men Red, and in this, I think there's this was an incredibly noble and in-character way for Magneto to die, giving his life to stop an omnigenocidal maniac with the personal force of his hands. The connection between Storm and Magneto is so great because not only did their powers work on like the same elemental physical level because of their electromagnetic powers, but like they're my two favorite characters in the X-Men. They are my two favorite characters characters in comic books they're two of the greatest characters ever made for the sequential art of you know superhero comics i think and having them work together like this in such an intimate and close way is uh it was everything for me this magneto and what he's been going on since uh destiny of x started feels very much in line with the fastbender magneto that we got characterization it works it works a lot because fastbender was so fucking good like even if you know some of the movements or points in that this would have been an amazing like final scene death or like the Fastbender Magneto character. Do I believe that like, damn, now I'm never going to read any more Magneto stories? No, because we've been reading comic books too long. He'll be back sooner than we think. I think we kind of saw this coming with the setup when, you know, he got onto the council in Araco and on the, the greater circle and destroyed his Cerebro backup. I love the pairing. I, I love the mutual respect and what we've been getting over in red with Magneto and Storm. It offers something that is different than when we get him with Xavier and something that I think has been lost for a little while and far more enjoyable in terms of giving Magneto someone that is both of power and conviction enough to garner his respect and be considered an equal, but without unfairly earning his deference the way Xavier does, because Xavier then is an asshole half the time and Magneto doesn't, you know, lets him because he loves him. Like, it's a different dynamic and I wish we could have gotten 40, 50 issues of like this storm and this Magneto together. It works and I think it gave us a really powerful moment in this series. Frankly, I wanted to see more of Magneto and Storm and Bobby as a brotherhood on X-Men Red. I think we will. I, de I definitely think that this entire timeline is going to be reset once Sinister kills a Marvel clone, but who knows? That's only the thing that Karen Gillan made sure that we knew in the first issue of Immortal X-Men. You're right. The same person who was writing this event Yep, 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 yep. I also feel like this might be the plan of the god. Like, the more and more that we think about how the god does seem to actually be omniscient, which is impressive for a god in the Marvel Universe specifically, I'm absolutely sure that he knows about the Moira clones and Sinister. There's no way he doesn't. It seems like this god is saying, you didn't make enough of your time now. You always put it off for another tomorrow. So I'm going to kill you all and teach you all a lesson. And then when the timeline gets reset, which I know it will because of killing you all, then you have another chance. You have a chance to try again and to do right in the today instead of in the tomorrow. And maybe that's what the God is intending this whole time. If they did, in fact, create a better God than they thought they had. Do you think this is already like the 26th, 27th time that Sinister has done this? Because he starts in Immortal X-Men with being like, this is the 26th time or whatever. Do you think this this Judgment Day has happened a billion times to Sinister already? <laughs> like at least 20? I would love, I would love if we got that revelation in one of the, the books coming up. <laughs>
the Moira clone sinister is so like there's so many cool opportunities you could do but they're like also you could overuse it too how do we get out of the celestial god starting to destroy the planet without having to reset the timeline i don't think there's a way to get out of this i don't know poor captain america surviving that first wave of assault that sucks that adamantium shield is doing a lot of heavy lifting i don't even think it's fully adamantium anymore but it saved him and nobody else well that's my big problem is okay so but like it didn't even save the guy right underneath yeah his it's just cap (laughs) the other person he's got under there just like oh he's dead yeah i guess you have to have an adamantium shield and also captain america's fucking skeleton like he got he got cremated on the spot and cap's just like damn but is this also another test like we've seen this celestial god do before because he's a test joke god boo i mean i guess i guess what do you get if you have sinister help make a god he's probably going to be a joke test god but like whatever how do we feel about the x-men being able to or the mutants being able to enter the unimine and help weigh the vote for arrows it definitely increases the idea that the eternals are just robots with programming because you should not be able to enter as clearly non-eternals even if you cheated like if you can enter the unimine because you cheated and lowered the firewalls like everybody in the unimine should still be able to see you and go you're not an eternal so you have no vote here right like they should be able to do that but instead they just go well everybody in the unified could vote for the prime eternal and that's the rules yeah like are deviants allowed because do we just do this whole track that like mutants are fucking deviants and now mutants are snuck into the unimind like there's a bit of yeah they must be because thanos got in and i know thanos was an eternal but he wasn't part of the machine so maybe deviants could always get in sandra nova just smiling so big behind charles over in in the picture where gene's like welcome to the unimind so like what havoc is she gonna wreak in the eternals programming because she looks like she is there to play it's wild that the mutants were able to lower the firewall and get in and still count as a vote but i'm glad they did it didn't matter in the end though unfortunately so let me ask you guys a question they brought sprite back to be a little more like what the movie would do but for the rest of these characters does it still i don't know i think for me gilgamesh was the one that just still kind of brought me out of it like when we went to Icarus and Gilgamesh taking down the firewall and you know you say like Gilgamesh is there he's like a ninja in a ninja suit and it's like cyber ninja I mean we've seen them do this so many times we're like we have a movie so we're gonna make Star-Lord is now Chris Pratt I think it's a mistake to think that the comics of this Eternals run have anything to do with the movie everything about this is just because the movie is completely different from the comics it's a very loose adaptation I know that yes probably the movie has something to do with it but why even make the movie if they weren't planning to do a good comics run because frankly nobody cares about the Eternals except for some of us. If you try to look at what Marvel does in comics versus the MCU like we all thought the Miss America series was like a retcon because of the upcoming Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness but it really wasn't in, it was like not interconnected. How at this point really is this even an Avengers event? It's much more of an Eternals X-Men event than anything else. Like I know we've got some key like Captain America moments and Tony Stark had played a big part in this but like the avengers don't even seem like a driving force no the avengers are like in a threesome meme where two of the characters are getting it on and the third one's just kind of like sitting on the side watching like that's the avengers <laughs> uh they just get to be here and tony stark gets to take the blame yeah okay but i'm okay with tony stark just taking the blame tony stark did just kill humanity right i mean it's based on him i think this really did just need to be tony stark x-men and eternals and so it wound up being called avengers x-men and eternals but 
but <laughs> it's it's not. It's yeah. You know, we have Cap. We have some of these Cap scenes, but the only real Avengers character that is playing a significant role in this story is Tony Stark. That's it. Yeah, we see the judgments for Thor and for Starbrand, and they're just off in space doing things. Yeah, I don't know. It is it is strange that the Avengers were positioned, especially in like the solicits, the solicits as the people who would have to stand between the Eternals and the X Men, and that was true at first, but ultimately, at least so far, four issues out of the six seven ish issue series, it does seem like the Avengers are just there to be like to get judged, to hold the fort down, to tell people not to panic. You know, like Star Fox is an Avenger, but I feel like in this story he's being positioned as strictly an Eternals character. Some of this is because Kieran Gillen's writing it, and Kieran Gillen is the writer of Eternals and Immortal X Men. We said like you know you have to be reading Immortal X Men to really know the main through line and motivations and what's going on with the X Men in this, and you have to have read Kieran Gillen's Eternals to really be following along or understand what's the eternal story in this. You do not, there is, I mean, we're not even seeing the majority of Jason Aaron's Avengers. You do not have to have been following Jason Aaron's Avengers or be reading it at all as part of, you know, your prerequisites for this series. Yeah, it feels like they were an afterthought. Like, hey, let's throw in the Avengers. Let's make it a three-way. What were some favorite moments of Death to the Mutants for all of y'all? For me, it seemed like it was a lot of expanding on ideas that we'd already seen. Um, I did love seeing Cersei and Jack from Knives go free arrows. I also loved Eros wanting to go see his mom and see what's up. What moments did you really stood out for y'all? I thought Crow was an all-star. Crow has the most conviction ever, so Crow wins. <laughs> the Deviants are all convicted in what they have to do, so the Deviants win. The Deviants get passed. It is just the biggest damn hero moment. He's so fucking cool. He puts on his little Jack Kirby sunglasses and he's ready to rock. Crow's sunglasses are the fucking all-star of this. Yes. Of this issue. He looks so Crow's good. sunglasses are... I was mean to, I was mean, I was critical of uh, Villanova on the first issue, but I think the art was amazing in this, in the second issue. I think the facial expressions were great. The expression work was incredible. I can tell what everybody was thinking on their faces. It was big, stylish, cool, colorful moments. It was great. I also like Sign the Mimitar. The Sign the Mimitar and her poetry reading experience was very important to me. That was very nice. I want Sign the Mimitar just to be able to be their true self, just writing poetry, not having to like be just giant part of the hex like burning down mutants right now yeah i mean i kind of had more to say about death of the mutants because death of the mutants takes place in between three and four and it it pairs with a lot of the other stories it's it's running very concurrent to the other stories that we're seeing in between three and four wolverine 24 x-force 31 x-men 14 you know we're getting in this they know the judgment you know it's been announced that judgment is coming and we're starting to see characters receive judgment and we're seeing the setup for what's going to go on in Axis in Judgment Day issue four. So I mean the moments, yeah, like what we got from Mimitar and the Poetry Girl, what we got with Crow and Emma were good. They felt more important in the moment, like reading them last week when this came out. They do kind of become like afterthoughts to me after having read Judgment Day four because we got so much of it. Like we got we it was just kind of more of increasing the impression giving you more repetition of this of the judgments but we got so many judgments in this issue in four we got what we saw in um you know in, in wolverine and in x-men and immortal x-men like we we saw all of these in between three and four issues doing a lot of the same thing so it added more to the overall impression it it kind of gave it a little more depth but it wasn't really giving us anything new or different it it was solid or good it was definitely i thought a better issue i was not as disappointed in it as i was the first issue 
issue. The first issue, I felt like I had just gotten robbed of $4. Yeah, was not sure I was going to pick up the second and third issues of this, but now I definitely Same. Be picking up. Yeah. Yep. And I'm glad I picked it up and I read it and it worked well. But once we've talked about four, I don't think there's as much to really go back and highlight in this. It'll add to your experience if you're reading it in between three and four. If you've already read four, I don't think it's then giving you much more to go back and pick it up. I think it's pretty clear that in a lot of these tie-ins, we are definitely going to see the progenitor judging people as he's either doing it on the covers or it is said at the end of previous issues that that's what's happening next. I think it's just skipping schedule. We still have a lot of judgments to get out of the way. A lot of these are going to be individual tie-ins, and I wonder how many of them are going to actually be part of the, the moving forward story besides just X, Judgment Day 5. And if you're looking at the schedule, Judgment Day 4 is before the schedule in X-Men Red number 6, and X-Men Red 6 clearly like leads into Judgment Day number 4. So like I, I don't know if that's like necessarily a real. It dances in the raindrops. It takes place after it starts and before it ends. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's actually, that's probably right. I think that's going to be the case for a lot of these. It's great that we finally caught up in Amazing Spider-Man to the modern moment because last issue was Hellfire Gala and this issue is X. Yeah, it took fucking forever to get that Moira follow-up story. Yeah. Shit. The Legion of X story, it even takes place during like Acts 2 or something. Oh my so, God, that's at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So assuming that the way the original checklist was written out, I was not expecting Earth to get its judgment in issue four because once we got to three and we saw that everyone's going to be judged, then it was like, oh, and now here's where all the heavy fucking tie-ins come because, you know, two thirds of these 37 issues are all, you know, after issue three. Okay, now we're going to see all these one shots and tie-ins and this is everyone getting judged. But then the Earth got judged, like we wrapped it up in four and we still have so many of these to be scheduled. Like the fact that we're not getting the judgment of the Earth in six, the fact that it already happened maybe i don't know i feel like it'll be poorly managed or relieved if we're going back like over the next month month and a half as this story is kind of in act three barreling to the conclusion still getting like act two judgments of characters coming out in these one shots. i definitely think it's a twist right like we got in judgment day two when we realized that like they're not going to actually be able to destroy the thing like this story has changed what it narratively is a couple of times not even just for like it was going to be a war and then it's a god judging them and now this now the judgment has come that we didn't even know was going to happen at the beginning of judgment day so i think that there's still going to be yet another narrative direction change for the next two issues uh but i completely agree i think the tie-ins if they're about judgments should have happened before number four so that we wouldn't be stuck with that with while we're doing whatever comes next if if this is just a straightforward like end of the world story and then reversing it at the end with a time travel or something i don't know but if this story changes direction yet again in four which i kind of feel like it will based on the structure so far having judgments passed after this is is a little strange I need to go dig out my issue of Immortal 3 and look at Irene's flowchart of like what's supposed to happen after Judgment Day again because you know that shit was not arbitrary <laughs> in terms of where this now is I'm heading back and everything and I'm like how many times has Destiny lied about the future because I have a tendency to <gasps> always how dare you she, she lied that's what the Celestial said Celestial literally was like she lied straight up lied about the Judgment Day thing and told everybody to manipulate them the untruth and then looked at the probability of what her lie would gain her. So now I'm like, how many times has Destiny lied? We all usually just assume she's telling the truth. I, on this very podcast, a few, like maybe a few weeks ago, I was like, Destiny's always got it. Like, you know, maybe she 
doesn't see the future perfectly, but she always knows what's going on. And I'm like, I never stopped to think that this evil old lady would absolutely just tell you a lie to try to affect your, your, your opinion of the future. It's so crazy that I never thought of that before, but now I'm going to have to go back and be like, how many times has Destiny just been straight up lying? Hey, this isn't me saying I don't like Destiny. Destiny is my, one of my very favorite X-Men characters ever. I'm just saying I'm okay with women lying, <laughs> but she's <laughs> lying. Fair. Okay. <laughs> this is not me saying, oh, I hate liars. Oh, I think she shouldn't be doing that. I don't like this character anymore. This is me saying, I can't believe she's been lying from the beginning. I have been such a fool. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Thumbs up. I'm Josh. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and F-L Politician, that P-O-L-Y, wink, wink. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, X-Gray-X. And that makes me Kevo, and you can find me over on the socials at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, and we do hope you survive this judgmental experience. I'd had a lot of nerves and vague consternation about entering this sort of Judeo-Christian fantasy of judgment by a god who determines the quality of your people's. Like, you know, there's things to this that I don't love from the conceptual outset. But all said and done, you know, at issue five of six, I feel perhaps like this is a really engaging crossover. You know, before we even talk about five, how was everybody feeling on one through four? I think I warm up to the series more and more. I shouldn't even say I warm up to it more and more. My warmth to it sort of fluctuates not just issue to issue, but even story beat to story beat. And there's none that I'm really like, this is bad. But sometimes it like really knocks me out with how poignant and engaging it is. And other times I feel like I maybe have just spent so much time reading Marvel Comics crossovers that I've gotten cynical to the point that I am more prone to if I see something that I recognize as having seen in a previous crossover or something that I feel like I've been burned by in the past with Marvel Comics. When I see it in a crossover like this by somebody like Kieran Gillen, who I really love his writing and really respect his process, I still have that same sense of like, not sure I trust this 100%. But on the whole, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's hard to tell what's poignant and what's pointless. Like there have been a lot of things, like when we talked about, I think it was issue three was the psychic fantasy. That whole issue, it felt like, all right, you kind of delivered a point, but you did it at the expense of an entire full issue of only six issues to tell this story. Really? So I'm kind of in the middle because this isn't your A-level crossover. This isn't like a Hickman Secret Wars or something where every week that an issue drops, like I want to be there on Wednesday at my LCS and it's the first thing I want to read. But it is also not like a number of the Marvel crossovers we've gotten lately where I'm like, fuck, I got to read this thing just because it's gonna, it's supposedly gonna impact shit or like where I'm like forcing myself through it. I am happy to read the new volumes each week, if not overly excited. And I think the main thing is, at least for the core book, 
book here is that I know it's written by Kieran Gillen, and so I know it's going to be good. And I do like that perspective, that even if the overall story is not always what you want it to be, you enjoy the writer, you enjoy the actual physical product of the art itself. I also would agree that I don't know if I'm like the most chomping at the bit for every new issue. I was really excited to get five when it came out because of that cliffhanger at the end of four. But other than that, it's mostly just been okay. And six months from now, we will know whether or not any of this has any lasting consequences or not. You know, I think a really good one to compare it to is Avengers versus X-Men from 2012, because that was one similar to this that I was not excited for going into. But it got so buck wild, like, you know, four or five issues in. It got so freaking crazy that there was a point where, you know, the Phoenix Five were knocking each other out. You had Phoenix Emma beating the shit out of Thor. You had that you just had to keep see like what the fuck is happening like i got super into it and excited as we were going story wise on this like in terms of the judgment they're trying to make the stakes as big as possible but in some respect because of that and because of who the eternals and who the x-men are and now apparently who the fucking avengers are you know spoiler for the last panel of this issue death doesn't really seem to be a stake or matter like it's it's hard to feel like yeah like that this is going to really impact or that you know we get to see a bunch of cool character deaths i have questions about some of them shouldn't phoenix be closer to a celestial power level but you know it doesn't really feel like oh my god i can't believe this person died or a whole like it's just kind of along for the ride and i think part of that is because we're so used to these crossovers that like do all the work beforehand and it's a really sort of interesting perspective that leaves us with this six issue crossover that in many ways while it builds on a lot of the thematic elements that have been running in multiple titles it actually really did source from that one issue it really just oh mutants are deviants let's go kill them right it all comes down to that one moment but it builds on the threads of so many previous titles and eras the feel that i get is instead of wasting my time with a 12 issue series where we either see this all slow come together or have wasted my time for six months manipulating a bunch of books that didn't belong in that position into those positions makes me think this might still be a better version of the crossover that we're sort of jaded by. For sure. I don't know that it's the best version. I still think that what they inadvertently stumbled upon with Empire was the best release format and we saw it with Hawksbox as well. If you can get the issues, if you have the last issue in hand before you release the first issue you can release them weekly you can build online momentum you can have a lot more kind of communal reading experience and you can kind of keep story momentum better with while impacting the ongoing monthlies and their stories as minimal as possible because you were getting in and you were getting out hoxpox empire that release method for me is the best i think that if we're going line-wide crossover that has that is your goal 
gold standard model as far as for my consumption, how I have experienced them. This is better than, you know, what we've seen with Fear Itself or Age of Ultron or a number of other stories. I always bring up Forever Evil in DC, but crossovers that went way too long and the main stories just gave up on even trying to pretend that it was going on in the background and just moved on with what they were doing before it even ended. Um, this one is, you know, the main titles it's impacting because there's not an Eternals anymore and it's not really impacting Avengers, I guess. So the X-Men titles are playing along with it nicely <laughs> and none of the other, you know, the rest of the 616 just has to take an issue to tell a is my character judge story? That's been one of the really funny things is I feel like Gillen and the other writers have done an incredible job of weaving together narrative threads from the Avengers, from Eternals and from X-Men. Like the ramifications of this book, not just in terms of like whatever happens plot wise, but the way that this book has been a place for multiple storylines for many different characters and teams to all come together. That's been done really expertly. And for me, that really is a driving motivator to get into the crossover. I actually, I also really liked Empire, but I did find that like it started with wanting to know what was going on in Empire X-Men, like to understand how that book was affected by the rest of the crossover. But I really kind of had to force myself to read Empire because the consequences from a narrative standpoint for the other Marvel books were not super high, which is on the one hand great because it means that it's not clouding up your monthly stories if you're not paying attention to the event. But on the other hand, it does kind of just make you wonder about what the value is for you if you are not particularly interested in whatever the main beats of the crossover are. In this case, it really just pulled from so much great mythology and canon from all over the Marvel Universe that it was a joy to read. And it's, you know, it's the way that not only does it pull these things together, but then it weaves new ideas out of them. Like the idea that the X-Men, the psychic X-Men show up in the Unimind is such a cool, gorgeous moment. And, you know, the Unimind is always important to the Eternals, but it's been very important to this previous run. The work that psychics do on Krakoa has been a really important part of the X-Men stuff lately. So it's just been very cool to see it all come together like this. It's tough not to notice how heavily this is impacting month-to-month X-Books versus not really doing almost anything with the other corners of the Marvel Universe, which I think is unfortunate. I would love to see the burden kind of spread out a little bit more. But overall, I do like how the narrative is spread out through all these different characters. So I am going to pull out the Kevo Novice card. I still have an Earning My Mutation ribbon on my X-Badge. And so I will ask the uh, dummy question for this segment, which is what level of crossover engagement do you normally see in these types of company-wide crossovers? And how does this event compare to other ones like, say, for example, AVX? Not just like how does it affect their other titles, but like from, you know, my perspective, this really feels like they pulled in the entire Marvel universe. And I don't know if that's, you know, they do this every fucking time. What would happen is every fucking book would have to have a banner across the top. So every fucking thing they're publishing, all 50, 60 some monthly series would have to have some title running across the top, some badge showing that it had to do with this crossover. So they'd have like an axe banner with a little golden kind of lines and shit around it. And then that character would be 
be like, you know, how they ran into Jada at Starbucks. It would be, they would, the writer would be forced to find some way to make this story go on during that. And some writers do it better. Some writers really care. I think one of my favorite examples is Kelly Sue DeConnick's Avengers Assemble from Infinity, where she was truly dancing in the raindrops and characters that were involved in the main story going between like when they were off panel in the main story. And some writers don't give a shit at all. And you can tell. And it just feels forced on you that every single book they're publishing is having Axe Month or Axe Months for three, four months. And I think the thing that fundamentally changes the conversation from day one is there was an intentional decision to keep the X-Men out of line-wide crossovers. And the X-Men represent a good third of the publishing schedule, to be really honest. And when the X-Men left crossovers, kind of sort of Spider-Man did too. I know he figured into a lot of big crossovers, but the level of engagement that you sort of see rotating through these books has to do with the source of the crossover. Now, this is specifically labeled Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, and I don't think that Spider-Man is an Avenger the same way. I don't think that he's really an X-Man. He's not an Eternal. So Spider-Man being in this, well, by name, maybe kind of, he could be under Avengers banner. But when we think about the level of engagement, it usually is about targeting and manipulating groups into situations. There's also often a secondary crossover going on most of the time. Like if there's a big summer crossover, the prelude to the X-Men's fall crossover is coming. So how does this equate? I think this is trying to be big from a small perspective at all times. We're very much focused on the battle and how it's all coming together. I would say this is more intimate than a lot of big crossovers this size, despite the ridiculous issue count. I'm not sure, you know, this is about as intimate as Hustle Ball, so I know what I'm saying, but still. And not even issue size. Intimate is a really fascinating word to use for a story about a giant mountain of a god that is judging every single person on Earth and just decided we're all going to die. That's ultimately more where I'm like, that's the hard thing about a universe like this. It's hard to appreciate the value of a story where a god is trying to destroy all life on Earth when other titles are like, nope, that's not happening. So you know that it's not going to be that. But it would be really foolish to tell a giant story and not have there be any consequences whatsoever. And it's difficult to know from this end of it what is going to matter. And that's always my problem of being in the thick of stories like this. So I found this issue in particular. I feel like Kieran Gillen is trying to follow a certain blueprint here at this point where we've got everyone together. This is definitely the most Avenger issue we've had so far. You know, the Avengers were in and we even got some background. We saw the Fantastic Four a number of times in background images. We saw Spider-Man. We're told that this is Marvel Earth and mass at this point. But it feels like he really is following like a, you know, line-wide crossover blueprint of, you know, the threat is at its max. We're getting our ass kicked. All of these heavy hitters are going out and getting taken out. And we have kind of the core group that is left strategizing that's going to try to try to take us to the finish line. It feels very similar to kind of like the ragtag assembled group that we got in. I'll go back to like an Age of Ultron. Even even in King in Black recently where, you know, the writer's kind of choosing like, I want these 10 to be my combo. And there's just something about it while it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable in the sense that like I, as long as I don't think about it too much. And 
this more than anything else that has happened post Inferno. I think this issue right here, Acts 5, is the first issue that made me think, man, what would this be like if Hickman was doing this? Because we had so much set up on these god tiers and celestials and phalanxes and all of these things. We've seen pulled from X-Men past that Galactus is so like celestial level and Phoenix can go toe-to-toe with Galactus and, you know, all of these kind of pieces that I feel like Hickman would have been very different and we've seen kind of teases, hints of it in the past for where this story happens to be at. And while I, I love Kieran Gillen and it's enjoyable, if not perfect, it really ventured into a place where I feel like we're a little bit outside of Gillen's strengths and I can't help but comparing it to Hickman, which hasn't happened yet until now. You know, I really get where you're coming from on feeling like there is this formulaity to crossovers now. And I sympathize with that, but it makes me wonder, like, you know, the problem with inventing the wheel is then people get bored of the wheel. I wonder if back in the early days of serialized storytelling, if a few years in, people were like, oh, and now here's where it's going to be the climax, and now there's going to be a denouement every time. It's just the same type of story. And, you know, the problem with coming up with a formula is then it's a formula. And it's really hard to reinvent something like that because you've built a product. This is what people are coming in for. You invented the crossover, and now this is what people are coming for. And if you don't do certain things, and if you don't play it a certain way, people will complain that it's not correct for that. So it's just, you know. And I think kind of tying this all together, what both of you just said, both, you know, Josh and Kevo, your perspective really leads me to a a thought. We come here for the Marvel style crossover, which is different than the DC style crossover. All crossovers have hallmarks, but they're very rarely identical house style to house style. I wonder what Hickman would have done with this, knowing that Hickman wanted to get rid of Krakoa after two years and make it that there was no more mutant engine, no more synergies, no more resurrection, no more eggs, that his goal was after two years. That's why he had to leave because he wanted to end Krakoa. We never would have had this under Hickman. And for that reason, I think that leads us to a place of this crossover, these elements that came together. I'm a little more than fascinated by how we go from this big picture macrocosmic view of the story, which is very in line with a majority of crossovers. And then we zoom in deeply on more or less a pair that I would not normally zoom in deeply on. I love Kurt and Cap together. That's Mm. some hot shit. That's two people whose personalities I think make sense together. And then, you know, Gene looking all kinds of fucking fly never gets on my nerves, especially on location (laughs) 10. That fucking hair girl do it, do everything. I thought you were just going to say on location. Yeah, Gene on location in my dreams, just reminding me why I'm Pan. And I just find the zoom in and out. Because, like, there are two Kieran Gillens, you know? I mean, because there's there's 10 Kieran Gillens. There's 76. And all of us are a multiverse and just find the fucking facet. You know what I mean? And so there's big story Kieran. And there's, hey, guys, I'm hanging out and having an emotional time, Kieran. And I feel like he's trying to flip back and forth between the two personas. It really is going to come down to how we feel about this month off between issues 
issues uh. where, where issue six is gonna go and you know so much of this is just really that battle leading into the celestial being like no i'm a bad baby and i already made up my mind and then we get cap's beautiful god-given bicep bursting out of the egg and i really love that kevo was like wait a minute with the shield and i just need to make the point that if you look at the crack size in the egg the shield could not have come through the egg. It no, has they to threw it thing. at him and he caught oh, it when it burst yeah. through. So they or had, like, we're going to get a beautiful, r- artful shot of it placed over the egg before he yeah. bursts out. Yeah, something. Proteus can put anything the fuck he wants in the egg. Proteus exactly. could have had him bursting out with the Starbucks cup Jada gave him. But then it would have broken the egg differently. The shield wouldn't have shrunk down to make yeah. a smaller hole and then further expand because we can clearly see the shield is significantly larger than the hole so it has to be that the shield was passed to him after the fact you've never seen something come out of a hole that then looked like it was so much bigger than the hole that it was in um not specifically these eggs but yeah i do appreciate the sort of mushrooming effect out of the hole um so okay now this is this is the big talk this is where we're at did captain america the the stand-up humanist human who wasn't even born with powers got powers through a serum you know got his trend going everybody's happy for him but is this the turning point for the entire marvel engine so i mean it comes down to the one thing which is that there is nothing about the mutant circuit that makes mutant resurrection possible that prohibits humans from doing it except for the fact that there are so many fucking mutants to bring back and fuck the humans that does sound correct i yeah just it's it's already so overwhelming when we're talking about 16 million mutants how can you even begin to think of the heroes. The only thing that this allows though is Marvel has spent so many years eye-rolling people back from the dead. If there's just a queue and certain people come back through it at certain rates and at certain points and there's an ebb and flow and it's who is at the at the top of the machine, who has like energy-wise shifted through to come back, this could give Marvel a way where we can have an era where instead of always being like, and let me guess, they came back through because like Doctor Strange is back and it's kind of an eye roll not that I don't appreciate a lot of the storytelling but essentially it's revealed that he kind of never actually went anywhere and this has become such a current at Marvel that I think Thanos died and was resurrected three times in five years and this could give you a way where because you don't want villains coming back through it because you don't want heroes that at the last moment turned on other heroes coming back through it this really does give you an effective way to create storytelling parameters by where you can bring back heroes at an unreasonable rate without qualifying the quality of the storytelling. Oh, it's even better than that because you have a built-in council making decisions on the inside that justifies it the exact same way the writers do, which is, you know what? We're done with this one. They're going to stay in the queue forever until we need them for something and then we'll bring them back when we need them because fuck it, we want them for this story or we need them for this problem to solve this problem which is exactly the way writers bring back non-a-list characters and is exactly the way the quiet council brings back non-a-list mutants this is one of those things that i i can see how it is brilliantly self-referential and we know we're always going to be dealing with resurrections and i think the that question one once we established what mutant resurrection was at the end of hawks pox was can they do 
do this for anybody. As soon as Cap came back, the moment I flashed back to was everybody being like, I don't know how Wanda wound up in the queue. She's not a mutant. And just the constant sneaking suspicion that there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't just resurrect anybody they wanted. Of course, there is logistical reasons why they're going to focus on mutants. But then there's a lot of moral stuff in universe in terms of like, you know, do you, do we pause the mutant resurrection queue anytime somebody like Cap dies because he's Captain America and he's so important? Well, what does that say about like a mutant child who does not have an offensive power and who's not a superhero, but who was killed? They still have a lot of really cool questions to wrestle with if they decide to go the route of mutant resurrection is now for the entire Marvel Universe. But I could also see at the same time that what we're getting is this is possible, but it is not going to become a storytelling engine. And in fact, the storytelling engine will be the fact that mutants are not willing to resurrect a lot of non-mutant characters. And so if we want those characters to come back, there's still going to have to be an interesting separate in-universe reason. Like what I'm getting to is in part, I'm still wondering if when all is said and done, the progenitor is going to reverse all all of the damage that came out of this crossover and reset right. us to a point. Because there's a lot. Yeah, and I still think that's possible. I can absolutely see how this could be a gritty, granular resurrecting of every single character that was killed in a slow, laborious process. But I could also see how just this has gone so far over the edge that it's possible that the only way to really bring it back to a like recognizable Marvel status quo is to have the godlike power use the godlike power to reset things. I feel like one of the big driving points to this end game has got to be the Eternals not killing random humans anymore. Some form of the mutants on Krakoa able to resurrect them or mutant resurrection being able to be a form for bypassing. Like there has to be some bypass on this where the Eternals are now in a place where they're not literally putting human lives at risk anytime they go out to try to save human lives. That's a problem that is being driven towards to solve in whatever godlike culmination rechange reshift we get at the end i have to wonder how being a human how is cap going to come back different do we know if they've done this with someone who's not a mutant before do we know how many times we're gonna get a supercharged cap the way we got supercharged sync yeah i turned to nico after this and i said is cap a mutant now i we don't know exactly what's what's up and now if moira mctaggart results in the death of mary jane there is no chance peter parker doesn't get to say you bring her back because yeah. she is a model and model are important. <laughs> and then what happens to Mary Jane if they bring her back in this way if there's a lot of doors? She better be Zendaya. Oh my god, I wouldn't hate it. I want to see a better view of life and death in the Marvel Universe, and I think this really could be a way to do it. Now, I do have a humongous concern with the upcoming motherfucking schedule. It is a long time till Judgment Day and Judgment Day Omega. There is a Axe Avengers number one which we are told to read directly following this. We have Axe X-Men number one, which promises to deal with Jean and the Phoenix and all of the stuff you're talking about.
talking about. Because, yeah, here's the big problem that I think everybody forgets when they're like, oh, Gene should only be the only one who only ever only has the only Phoenix, only, only. When people get like that, they forget that then how the fuck can Gene be in anything but a crossover? If we're saying that then the Phoenix is celestial level, which I'm completely with you. Like, I don't understand why Maya isn't like, and by the way, they're really doubling down on Maya. They just announced that there's going to be a special soft cover collection of all of the really hard and out of print Maya Lopez stories. You used to have to get them in the Joe Casada Marvel Knights hardcover omnibus and the Daredevil Unusual Suspects long out of print trade, but they're getting recollected in an Origins of Echo story. So Marvel's not done with her, but yeah, the fuck, man. Like, Jean, even as not the Phoenix, is, is she's everything, man. And so hold on real quick. Everyone, the way Kieran Gillen listed them in that panel where he listed Phoenix and then Jean Grey, specifically one after the other. Every, everyone had to stop for a second, though, right? And yes. Okay. Even those of us that are super strong on Jean Grey is not the Phoenix, like still had to be like, oh, fuck, oh, right. right. It's so strange for me that Kieran Gillen romanticizes the characters on these pages the way he does. And I think one of the things that made me the happiest, and I'm just going to fucking say it, is motherfucking dupe in the <laughs> middle of page 12. <laughs> that was just like one of the greatest gifts to me in my life. I don't know what Nighthawk of the Squadron Supreme is doing there because I did not think the squadron were down like that right now. I also love Namor, who was very recently um, a terrorist flying just inches above Angela and Doctor Doom on a speeder. There is something so fucking great about the nature of this big splash page being these characters because for every moment where we're like, yeah, he really gets Gene and oh my god, I would give anything for Kieran Gillen to go back to Thor. The guy did such a good Thor run and his journey into mystery is literally of legend and there is something so special to me about the way he really believes in this team if nothing else he kind of makes me believe in this team and gene as the phoenix as this thing that we know is going to come back right as the phoenix at some point there's just no way that marvel will never go there again yeah. i really believe that if she is life incarnate and judgment day is coming and all of these things are are playing into this bigger picture i believe believe Marvel is looking to treat the Marvel Universe perhaps like a tabletop game. And I believe they're going to introduce a new expansion to the rules. And I think that the climax that we're building toward in 6 needs so much room between 5 and 6 because one of our criticisms has been there's not enough of the moments that push us. There's just a lot of it's the next moment. I really believe that this month of one-shots is our opportunity to see those moments. And it seems like it is an opportunity to take Take some big swings with specific characters who, for whatever reason, need to take a notable step in whatever their narrative journey is going to be for Marvel Comics. The other big example I'm thinking of is Iron Fist, who was formerly Swordmaster, who had a fantastic five-issue run under Alyssa Wong. And we are now starting to associate Iron Fist with Lin Lie rather than with Danny Rand. And we need 
to see where that journey is going next. It would be really disappointing to sort of fall back and say like, well, that was a cute five issue mini, but now Iron Fist is Danny Rand again. But we're also not at a place where, you know, the Swordmaster Iron Fist connection is concrete and forever lasting. So this character is at a precipice and needs to move for certain in one direction or the other. I think similarly with Gene, we need to know, are we putting this Phoenix thing on the back burner for a while and like just ending all these questions? Or are we at the point where it has been a while since Phoenix resurrection, where she said like, you know, Phoenix, we're not hanging out for a while. And now it's time to get back to that story. So, I mean, real quick, just on that, Nico is right. They're never not going back to it. Like Jean Grey and the Phoenix together is like a toxic ex that was really good in bed. Like it's not an if, it's just a when. Eventually it's just going to fucking happen and we'll all regret it afterwards. In terms of all of these issues, right? And this was one of my, one of my initial complaints before we even started reading this was you gave me a 37 issue fucking checklist for this series. Like, God damn you, Marvel. And when we got to the end of issue three, I think a lot of us felt like we knew where all of these tie-ins and crossover issues were going to go. Okay, we're going to be seeing, you know, kind of felt like original sin like oh everyone had some secret revealed so now we're going to go into all these crossovers or tie-ins and we're going to see what their secrets were oh everyone's getting judged so now we're going to go into all these crossover tie-ins and everyone will get judged and then the judgment ended before we even started any of those crossovers or tie-ins now with it being the end of the world um i'm not as optimistic as you are in terms of what all of these crossover and stories are going to do for this the fact that it says yes definitely read Avenger uh, Axe Avengers next. I would like it that yes, that is, you know, 5.4 or whatever in the reading order and not just that they're trying to make sure we buy the thing since there's, you know, a month before issue six. Um, I'm a little more concerned. It feels a lot like Last Rites. It feels a lot like when we were in Secret Wars and everyone started doing this is your character's last day on Earth. This is their final story. This is what they do when the world ends, which we already got. And that at this point in the story to be going over and checking in with Fantastic Four and Star Fox and Avengers and Jean Grey and, da, 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 and Iron Fist and da, 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 that like and don't that, forget how important Craven is over in X Force yeah. and also uh, to back up Nico's point why is there not an Axe Dupe one shot why don't we get Thank to you. see what Dupe's doing Thank you it is, lots and lots no, and lots no no reasons none my, zero my least favorite ever <laughs> X Men crossover got a retelling from Dupe's perspective and it made me like it a little bit more. Listen, we don't know that Judgment Day number six is not going to essentially be a dupe one shot. So just give it time. If dupe and the Phoenix could come together, because, okay, I Phoenix bring it up. Dupe. Phoenix dupe. Phoenix dupe is how you beat the Celestial. That's it. Because what does dupe have Take inside my money. of him? A limitless parallel reality that can house anything and allows for hammer space in which dupe is supreme god of all things. So with dupe having a parallel dimension greater than the size of the Marvel Universe that contains it inside his tummy. His cute little green Pooh Bear tumbly. I, because Dupe is the Pooh Bear of the X-Men. He just wants to do his up-downs. And I, God, I love this character so much. It literally doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But like, Dupe How being in this How has no one issue, ever drawn Dupe as the Phoenix before? That's crazy. That just feels really obvious to me. So, man, this got really off the rails in ways that only this group of people could have done. But like, also, maybe it's not off the rails. Maybe this is exactly what we need to be driving towards. 
Okay. Then that's it. That's yeah. that's what it is. I think you're right. I think to an extent, because as you know, Josh, one of your first points was, yeah, but I'm a little bit along for the ride. The stakes are weird. And TK, one of your perspectives has been that there's a sort of secondary engagement where these other titles are going to hopefully do a bunch of the work. And then, you know, Kevo, you as a third person coming in, I think we are all kind of saying it's either got to be very by the numbers or fucking ridiculous. Yep, I that's mean, basically it. They killed Thor, Starbrand, Phoenix, Jean Grey, and Exodus, and Icarus in half a page. Like, at that point, it is an overload of destruction of major top-tier characters that lets you know that things are not, like, this is being written in pencil, not pen. Yeah, and that's what I keep saying is the only thing that's hard about this, is knowing what is only in pencil, what is going to be in pen it's not that the story is less engaging when it's the stuff that's in pencil but especially when you start to do so many things then it just start you get to, you get numb you get a little bit numb to how overwhelming all of it is it, for no other reason, has me excited that they felt that Avengers, X-Men, Iron Fist, Star Fox, Eternals all deserved five separate stories instead of trying to pile it into one big issue and making it like a seven issue series where inexplicably the penultimate is like double sized. I'm looking at you, Secret Wars. So I'm excited. I feel like at times my interest is waned, at times it's exploded, but no matter what, I'm getting a satisfactory read that when I crack this big boy back open when I get the omnibus edition at some point because I'm gonna I'm gonna appreciate the art the framed moments and the passion that went into making it. well the overall story it's it's hard to get in line with the stakes and I've commented on how much I do enjoy love the writing one thing I will give this in terms of being a large crossover or for a scale of epicness is how many fantastic moments it has and I think that's something that I've been very critical on other crossovers and events for not having maybe the only thing I was super favorable about on King in Black was the amazing big Jean Grey moment. Big moments that you remember and are like, fuck yes, from that, I think are key. You have to have them. Like, you have to have them in a big Avengers movie. You have to have them in a big crossover, a line-wide. And there were so many in this. There were a number of them and I don't think there were any that I enjoyed quite as much as Jada having Starbucks with Cap. That just Jada walking up to him early on with the two cups of coffee and that conversation was that is the thing that i am gonna remember like i want a one of those little pop scenes like epic moment scenes of jada and cap two funko pops of them sitting in the snow or the ash no that's ash that that's that's um cremated people um <laughs> and other stuff it's new and, york there's garbage everywhere and sharing starbucks that was such a fantastic moment the dialogue the art like and to have such a great quiet moment like that in an issue that had so many major huge punching moments also was you know tremendous on Gillen's part still find that space in here Kurt really for me is the delightful POV star of this issue in a lot of ways and on top of just like the the fact that he and Cap are interacting it's something that you would not immediately think to put the two characters together but yeah of course they fit really perfectly like 
he is Errol Flynn and Cap is somebody who would find Errol Flynn really charming. So it makes perfect sense. On top of that, the way Skeety draws Nightcrawler, he actually for once really does look like Errol Flynn. The facial hair is such an important feature and is such a great stylization of Kurt that just him like going and picking out which sword he's going to take with him. But the other thing I want to point out is a moment in this book and in Hoxpox that just like to me a hallmark of a really great mutants being in the crossover thing is Kurt and Logan having a moment of beautiful friendship you get it in Hoxpox where they are on the mother mold and they've accepted that they are both going to die and you know Kurt says I'll see you on the other side basically and just this moment here with them smiling at each other knowing again that they're going into death but rejecting it it really is one of those hallmarks of an X-Men moment that lets you as the reader know that everybody involved can see how important it is not just to hit the big blockbuster beats but to have intimate personal moments that are going to be recognizable and important to readers and whether my interest has waned or really exploded depending on the moment and the issue pieces like this are what really drives my love for this story so first and foremost the thing that I really want from the conclusion of this story is a reckoning with the fact that this god has straight up just become a villain now like you are no longer an impartial judge there were periods during this issue where he was basically taking out right glee at the destruction that he was enacting with the omission of really any involvement from the machine in this issue which the celestial itself even commented on i would really love some sort of celestial versus the machine conflict being a huge part of the final issue in whatever way Gillen has gone so far out of his way to make the machine that is this planet an exciting and engaging, entertaining character. And I feel like that has to be going somewhere ultimately, especially with all the interactions we've seen with them already. So I really hope to see that. I'm excited for that. To hearken back to something that Josh was talking about with the cinemability of stories like this and just the Marvel Universe in general, one of the things that I'm always keeping my eye on the horizon, you know, especially with husband talking more or less where we have covered a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe I'm thinking a lot about the fact that the mutants are any any day now, any month now, any year now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We know this, they have dropped more than enough hints and specifically very shortly after this final issue we are getting Black Panther Wakanda Forever which is the introduction of Namor which is really one of the biggest steps into the mute universe and deciding who the mutants are, how they're going to be portrayed and one of the things they always need to be thinking about is the reciprocity between the comics and the films and how they make synergy between those two things they're really going to be looking to leave the mutants in a place very soon that is close enough to what they're going to be showing in film that people want to be going back and forth that it's easy for film viewers to pick up the comics and feel like they're seeing the characters they're watching these new movies about so i'm really really most fascinated to see where the mutants are going and how that is going to relate to the cinematic universe because it's it's really coming. (laughs) 